Now, you do know that I can sing that bass part you know, that Bob used to play. I mean, if you do the camel train, I got the boom, boom, boom down, you know. <clears throat> I practiced when I was young. How many of you older folks remember that song out of the 50s and the 60s? Hey, Mr. Bass Man. Huh? How many know that song? You got it? You know, yeah. Well, I, I practiced on that song. Don't mean no. You see, you kids, you don't know nothing. That's your problem. You grew up in a world where they don't have real music. And you look like it. <coughs> Just kidding you. <coughs> now, last week, uh, we moved past our well, well, uh, well study, not whale study, well study out of John chapter 4. And we looked at another key verse and issue that is the, the downfall of New Testament Christianity. Years ago, uh, I read a book that talked about the death of biblical doctrine. And this guy wrote, and it was an incredible book, and uh, it was a book that really laid out the death of Bible doctrine in churches and in preaching. If you heard me preach about the absence of real Bible doctrine for ever since we have been together. If the guy was still alive, I'm sure he'd be writing a second book. Somebody ought to write it, and that would be the death of New Testament Christianity. Because the death of Bible doctrine just was the headlines that was going to lead to where we are at today. And, you know, in John chapter 4, I told you that we were going to begin to look at last week the biblical definition of the word worship, what it really means. You know, without a doubt, probably for you and for me, once you get saved, the greatest doctrine that needs to be understood is the biblical doctrine and definition of what a New Testament worship with God really is. And it was for this purpose that I took time last week to lay out the incredible parallels uh, between the nation of Israel and the United States. And, you know, I, I, I told you early on that you have to, at some point, you have to become a student of history along with being a student of the Bible. Because the lessons from our history will always show us where we are going in our future. And how that the similarities, when you look at Israel uh, and the United States, you see that God had a plan for both nations. Obviously, we know what God's plan was for the nation of Israel. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know <clears throat> what God's plan was for the United States of America in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we know that the kingdom of heaven was in effect, and we understand that that is a physical visible kingdom that was given to Israel. And so the temple of God was fixed in a point in Jerusalem. And it's where the Dome of the Rock is now, and the Muslims have control of that area temporarily. And uh, that's where the original temple was. And back in the Old Testament, God's plan was a nation that built a literal temple, and everybody in the world, if they wanted to find God, had to come to that temple in Jerusalem. Now, things changed in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we're in the kingdom of God. We know that's a spiritual kingdom, and it's inside you. And in the New Testament, we uh, realize that our body is now the temple. 
Your body is the tabernacle. Your body is the temple of God, the literal temple that uh, is your body. And now we are to take the temple, our body, to the world. Where in the Old Testament, the world came to the temple. In the New Testament, it's no physical body. It's a spiritual body, and we take it to the world. But God had two nations that really play a key role in what God was doing uh, one at the beginning of the Bible, and the other one would be the United States at the end of the Bible, and of course, the England would be in the middle of it. Learning the lessons from history. God's hand in preserving America. Most people, and it's certainly not taught in grade school, grammar school, high school, and certainly not in college, seeing God's hand in the preservation of the United States of America. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know what you do with history. Did you ever notice how that the early explorers who came to the New World, every one of them, without exception, was Roman Catholic? You got guys like Magellan. I I, I know, you think that's your little GPS in your car. No, no, no. He was a guy who was out of the Catholic Church, Spain. You've got to remember now, during this time, Spain was the world sea power. England hadn't really come on the scene yet, so, so, but here again, the devil had it all orchestrated that <clears throat> he wanted all the new world to be Roman Catholic. Because the first thing the Roman Catholics did was when they took a place, they had a guy with them, a priest or whoever, a Monsignor or a Heil Hitler or somebody, and he came ashore and he claimed that land for the Roman Catholic Church. And so you had guys like Magellan. You have guys like uh, Cortez who conquered the Incas in South America. You had Vasco da Gama. You had guys like Ponce de Leon who, uh, uh, who tromped the Florida swamps looking for, looking for the fountain of youth. See, <clears throat> they're all Bible-based. The Catholic Church wanted new territories to expand her world so When nobody else would venture out to find the new world, the Roman Catholic Church through Spain uh, certainly was up to the task. And Ponce de Leon, he he knew something about the Bible. He knew there was a tree of life in the Genesis. I don't think he probably understood there was one in Revelation, nor could he put the two together. But he's looking for it. And, you know, trying to find the fountain of youth in Florida would be like trying to find the Ark of the Covenant in Raytown. It just didn't there. <clears throat> but the one we're all familiar with is, is Christopher Columbus. And, uh, you know, the little thing you learned in school in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And uh, he tried to get people to send him out, and nobody would, but it was Ferdinand of Spain and Isabella, his queen, who uh, sent him on a venture to find the, uh, the new world. And, of course, he is given the credit. We celebrate it. Well, we used to celebrate it. They're going to try to do away with Columbus Day. But we used to celebrate Columbus Day and as the day that, because technically speaking, he's given the credit to, uh, to uh, discovering America, which he did not. But that's the way it flies, you see. That's the way it works. His main flagship was the Santa Marina, Holy Mary. And so he comes over, and it's an interesting thing. I've read a number of books on Christopher Columbus so well that I call him Chris now. 
I've not read a number of books on his life and, and who he was. And, uh, and one of the amazing things is that when I read these things from a Bible-believing standpoint, and I know that God had America reserved. He didn't want the Catholic Church conquering America because he had plans for America. And, of course, when you begin to read the log books, they've been on the ocean now for many, many days. And, of course, they're struggling, uh, wondering if they're going to find land. They don't know. See, the Catholic Church taught that the earth was flat. They burned guys like Copernicus and those guys at the stake because they said it was round. Little did they know that the book of Isaiah, long before Copernicus got the syrup taken out of his formula, Isaiah told us that the earth was round. In Luke, in the New Testament, you're told that the earth is, a, is round. Uh, it was in the Bible. <clears throat> but the Roman Catholic Church, they got reading the Bible. They read back there in Isaiah chapter 28 and Isaiah, or, uh, Job chapter 40 and 41, <clears throat> where it talks about the dragons and the behemoth and the leviathan playing in the sea. There was no way they could put that into a proper understanding like we do it here because we have the Bible and we believe it. So they thought that those sea monsters were in the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean in the, out there, you know, and they thought that the earth was flat because obviously anybody with any intelligence, you walk out and look at it, you can see it's flat. And that's what they thought. And they said, when you go so far out there outside of land, you're going to go off the end and... And I don't know where you go from there, maybe Topeka, Kansas or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's a thing where you, you get, and there was also monsters out there, sea monsters. And they got that out of the Bible. Little did they know or could they interpret the Bible to figure out that the earth was round. And uh, so Columbus is out there with the great fear and anticipation that he's going to wake up in the belly of a Leviathan someplace or go off the edge and, you know, know, know where he goes from there. But but he, 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 he found it. And they're going for a long time now, months. And everybody's at the point of rebellion. <clears throat> he needs to find land. And so he's sailing. And if you look on his course, he's heading right for the east coast around Virginia or someplace South Carolina, right through there, right on the, right on the east coast. And, but he can't see it yet. He sees some land-based birds that are flying in a direction. And he knows that they're probably going back to land, so he changes course and follows those birds. And then he winds up discovering San Salvador, not the country, the island there. And uh, everything that he touches from that point on becomes Roman Catholic. It's an incredible study to how God had America preserved. I should say reserved. He had it preserved from the Catholic Church and reserved for Bible believers. The Bible believers out of Europe. We know them as the pilgrims. We have traditionally every, every uh, uh, November uh, Thanksgiving. Most people have lost the real meaning of Thanksgiving uh, because Americans have quit giving thanks a long time ago. But it's a remembrance of, of where our country was started. And uh, most people do not know <coughs> that the pilgrims, when they left <coughs> England, and they, had, they were actually in, in Holland for a while, when they, when they left Europe, let's just put it that way, they were fleeing church persecution. 
they were being persecuted by the church state, Roman Catholic Church, and they were being persecuted by the Church of England that was uh, in, uh, in England at, at that time. And so they left. And in 1620, <clears throat> they landed at what we now know today to be Plymouth, Massachusetts. We know it as the Plymouth Rock. Now, there's a rock up there. I've been there. I've seen it. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's traditionally where the Plymouth guys or the pilgrims landed in their Plymouth. I mean, in their boat. When they came to Plymouth, excuse me. And it's a thing where it, it may be or may not be, but it, that's beside the point. And in 1620, they landed at Plymouth, 102 people. Among them were a guy by the name of William Bradford, a guy by the name of John Robertson. He was the pastor, actually, of the group. Uh, John Smith, Miles Standish, you know about him. He was the military guy that protected them from the, from the Indians. You had William Brewster, uh, John Algon, and, of course, John Turner, and many, many more. They were all saved men. They were I don't know about Standish, but the rest of them were all saved men and were born again and believed God and his word. Now, you need to know this. The Bible that they came over with was not a King James Bible because the King James Bible hadn't been, hadn't been printed yet. And, you know, all this stuff takes place right around the, and that's another great thing. Uh, God, there's so many things God is doing here, but all this starts right about when the printing press gets developed or gets invented. And then now the first book that they printed on the Gutenberg printing press was the Bible. And it was the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible is out of Geneva, Switzerland. It's off the same Greek New Testament text that your King James Bible from. In fact, there are six early English translations, the King James Bible being the seventh, Psalms chapter 12, and uh, it's a thing where this is the forerunner of the great King James Bible was the Geneva Bible. So they bring the Geneva Bible with them when they come. Most people never stop and look at our founding, 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 founding fathers, the pilgrims, uh, and really understand and put it into a biblical context of God's preservation for this country to keep it out of the hands of the Roman Catholic Church because of what God had planned for America, just like he had planned for the nation of Israel. First off, as you know, they had the Geneva Bible. As I've already said, that was the right Bible to come with. The Bible that they were, uh, that they were up against was the uh, Douay Reims. The Douay Reims come out of Douay, uh, Reims, Germany. It was a Roman Catholic Bible, and of course, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would kill anybody uh, and Church of England, too, that took uh, the uh, Geneva Bible over that. So they're fleeing the persecution. Gee, what can I say? I always thought the name of the ship was interesting. You see, God will put little things in history if you're a Bible believer and you have a trained eye to look and see that'll kick some things over. Does anybody ever wonder why it's called the Mayflower? I know, because there's a moving company in America that moves your furniture when your grandma's got to move. No, no, Mayflower. That's Song of Solomon chapter 2. The great chapter on the rapture of the church that says that the rains come, the flowers appear, and then the Lord comes back. So we have a little thing called April showers bring May what? May what? And then what? The rapture. 
You see, God has more in a hand in things in history than you think he does. And the reason why so many of God's people think that he has no hand in history is because, honestly, and I don't mean this to be cruel, he has no real hand in your life. So you don't look for things like that. You don't look for them in your own life, let alone looking back at the pilgrims in, the, in, the, in, you know, in 1620 coming over on the Mayflower. Now, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to stand up here and say that these pilgrim guys, they said, hey, let's call it the Mayflower because we're looking for the rapture. I, I don't necessarily believe that. But I do believe that God has a hand in everything in history. And I believe up there in heaven, when it's all being put together, God, some one of the angels or cherubims or seraphim said, hey, Lord, they're going to need a boat. And God says, yeah, get that Mayflower. Because they're Bible believers. And maybe somebody, someplace in history, will read Song of Sodom in chapter 2 and read April showers bring Mayflowers. Why do you think there's so many weddings going on right now? Why do you think the phrase is a June bride? I'll tell you why. Because in the Bible in Song of Solomon, take it for what it's worth, it gives you the indication that in the springtime is when the rapture is going to take place. Well, wouldn't that be great? And it's sometime after the rains, April. Go look outside this morning. Got to bring the May flowers. And then you're going to have a June bride. Now, it's things like that that you've got to train yourself to see. Now, that's not all. That's not all. They're called the pilgrims. Now, they're not called the pilgrims, so 2,000 years later, John Wayne could say, well, pilgrim. That's not, that's not why they're called pilgrims. <laughs> they're called pilgrims because in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 16, there's people who've loved God and believed God, the nation, of Is- the nation of Israel, who are going into a strange land, the promised land, much like the pilgrims, and the Bible says they were pilgrims. You, you just can't get out from the Bible in history. When they got on shore, you know what they did? They did what they called the Mayflower Compact. <clears throat> That's so all the women would have makeup in the morning. <clears throat> no, no. The Mayflower Compact, believe it or not, was the first religious document in the United States of America. And these Bible believers got together and came up with a Mayflower Compact that guaranteed that no church, state, set up, whatever, in their world, that man could teach the Bible, preach the Bible, and believe the Bible the way that he wanted to. God had a hand in America. I'm not going to hit this one too hard, but maybe you don't even know this. You know that when the pilgrims came over here in 1620 and founded America, America was founded out of a pandemic. You didn't know that, did you? It was called the Great Death. And the Mayflower stayed off the shore for a whole year while these people fought off this pandemic, the Great Death, that wiped out whole tribes of Indians and w- w- could have decimated or did decimate many of the people that came over. And that ship stood by. Listen to me now. That ship stood by to take them back to England if they needed to get out of Dodge because the pandemic was too bad. And you know what? They stayed. 
I wonder where America would be today if they would have done what so many of God's people have done when the pandemic hit, just gave up Christianity and said, I ain't taking a chance for God on anything. Plymouth Rock would have meant a whole new term. It would have been the rock they were hiding under, not the one they landed on. You see, this is the importance of history. This is important to understand that what we have went through, we're not the only ones that ever went through it. And it's, a, it, it's great to learn the lessons of history because what happened in history is going to happen in the future. And we are having our own great death. And I'm telling you, you just cannot get away from the hand of God. And of course, from them, in the next 20, 30 years, the floodgates were opened. Once they established themselves through a pandemic and said, we're not going back. We're not stopping. We're not going to let this thing send us back to the persecution of Rome and the Church of England. We're going to build this on the Bible because we're Bible believers and we trust God to get us through this. Once they made that commitment and the doors were opened, the next 20 years, thousands of Bible believers. The floodgates were opened. In the next 20 years, thousands of Bible believers flooded here from Europe to flee the persecution of Rome and the Church of England and the the Lutheran Church. And by the 1700s, just what? 80 years later, we have New England now firmly established. We have preachers like Jonathan Edwards. We have preachers like George Whitfield. And now we begin to see God's hand in America of where it's going, that God is going to preserve it and keep it because God has a plan for it. So in the next 200 years, up to 1950, we see across this country, starting on the East Coast and moving across to the West Coast, seven great awakenings through the men of God who believe the book that you hold in your lap this morning, and God used those men right up to the final end in 1950, thereabouts. We see from this New England colony, the 13 colonies, moving right up to what we have in the United States today. We see the founding fathers, the, uh, the early you know, Revolutionary War father, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, all of those guys. We see the great Bible believers and the great men who loved God and who understood that this country would never survive without God because it was God who brought this country into being, just like the prophets tried to tell the nation of Israel. And both Israel and both America, when they lost the Bible, they lost their future. God had a plan for America. You will find when you look at the nation of Israel and you look at the United States of America, you will find that both of them in history have a formulation. God formed them. Both of them have the Word of God in their formulation. Both of them are called out. Exodus chapter 12 for the nation of Israel, the Mayflower for us. You will find that both of them get established. You'll find that both of them hit an apex in their history where they're at the best they ever were. And then you're going to find that both of them go through a demise. Both of them go through into a captivity. And both of them wind up in total apostasy. 
And as long as America took care of God's word, God took care of America. And then I showed you about our demise and our captivity going through the seven periods of church history last week and really focusing on the last one, the Laodicean church period, the one that we're all part of. Our nation uh, before your very eyes being totally changed to meet the need of the coming man of sin. And that's really all this is about. You can leave the politics out of it. This has nothing to do with the Democrats and the Republicans. This has to do with a Christianity that has thumbed their nose at God's word and God's judgment now is on America. We're in the end times. You say, you're a preacher of doom. Maybe for you. I, I'm as excited as I could ever be about the times I'm living in. Where the government will control every aspect of your life so when he does come, the Antichrist, you'll already be set up for him in a one-world government with a one-world control. And if you know anything about Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and you can put the two together, you'll probably understand that America's probably going to be the hub for all of that. But that's another set message. I showed you how easily God broke down those 2,000 years of church history. And for, for our learning's sake, we, we focused on two churches. We focused on the church of the open door, Revelation 3.8, the Philadelphian church, 1600 to 1900, and the church of the closed door, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, 1900 to where we're at today, the Laodicean church. The importance of the key of David. That is the excuse my pun, that is the key to it all. Understanding the key of David. And I gave you, and I told you there were two of them in the Bible, and I gave you the one in Revelation chapter 3, but I did not give you the second one because I just wanted to see how many of God's people went to work this last week to find out what that second one was. Probably not too many. I get it. I mean, the Royals are playing... The bachelorette is coming down to a crisis. <laughs> American's Idol is kicking off and going to town. I know, you're a, you're a busy little person. I get that. Now, <clears throat> all of this stuff will be in what we teach in Bible Institute on the seven mysteries, which is found, one of them found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, all this material. And uh, we, it has been given to the church, and yet we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that the pastors in the churches are to be stewards of all this mystery. But we're, they're not. They're not. And as I said, today I, I want to look at the seven things. I brought you through a little bit of last week. Today I want to talk to you about the seven things that you will lose when you give up your Bible. Now, I... I, 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 I I used to teach this till I got my head straight on it, the seven things you'll lose when you lose your Bible, but you really don't lose your Bible. The Bible's always here, Hosea chapter 8, verse 11. We just give it up. Now, before we get into all this, I want to tell you about another key book in the Bible. Before we get to that, let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you so much. We thank you that in these unsure days, that in these days that look so dark and gloomy, that we have the light of the Word of God. We thank you that, that the entrance of thy Word giveth us that light. And we thank you for the great promises that we 
never doubt in this darkness what you have given us in the light. And we thank you and praise you for all that. Help us to see and understand what God had planned for this country and how this country opted out of those plans. But that doesn't take away our responsibility to hold the line in these last days. For us of us who know and understand, we have no excuse but to shoulder up and do the work that God's called us to do as best we can. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. God, open up our eyes. We might behold mighty things out of thy law. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Now, the other key book that you've got to see to put this together is the book of Colossians. Again, trained eye. I don't know what you know about Colossians. I've taught you many, many things about it, but it probably got confused with the Bachelorette and all that other good stuff that's going on. But, uh, you know, it goes right along with Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. The book of Colossians shows us the working key elements in the Laodicean church period. You'll find in the book of Colossians, if you're paying attention, the word Laodicea mentioned five times. You'll find it in 2.1, you'll find it in 4.13, 4.15, and then two times in 4.16. And Laodicea in history was a town that was just 10 or 12 miles south of Colossus. It would a lot be like, you know, we're here in Independence, but if we go down Lee Summit Road, we're going to get into Lee Summit. Just something like that. And to the trained eye, that should jump all over us. But again, most of God's people, you know, they can't even find the book of Colossians without the index. So I get it. Now, without a doubt, the key to our survival today will be the understanding, the breakdown of this book. Just four short chapters. In chapter 1, you'll find that he goes to great lengths to redefine who Christ is. He does this because the church today has completely lost who he is. He starts out in verse 9 by praying that we get all wisdom. That's good. But it isn't enough. Then he says spiritual understanding. You see, that's, spiritual understanding is how to interpret the wisdom that you have through the Bible to understand the wisdom of all things. You've got to see what God is into it. When I just gave you the history of America and the Mayflower and all the pilgrims and all that, that was spiritual understanding. That was taking a piece of history that you've all been taught but looking at it from the Bible standpoint. And then he says in verse 10 that so we can walk worthy of the Lord and, and bear fruit. Then verse 14, he tells us that redemption only comes through the blood. And the reason why he does that is because if you have an NIV or any other Bible, they completely take the blood out for salvation. So he has to redefine that. And that he's the firstborn of every creature. That would be Hebrews chapter, what, 1 uh, verse uh, uh, 3 someplace in there. And that's a, that's a powerful thing. In verse 16 and 18, he redefines Christ as the sole creator of every uh, of everything. And that's because in the day and age that we live in, the world believes in evolution and most of God's people believe in intelligent design. Nobody just believes that God made it the way it says in Genesis anymore, hardly anybody. And, uh, you know, that's just, the, that's just the way the wind blows today. And then he says that in verse 18 that uh, that he is alone, is the head of the church, and that he wants preeminence of everything in our lives. And then he says, if we continue in the faith and get grounded and settled in truth, that we will be presented, this will be the judgment seat of Christ, that we will be presented holy, 
unblameable and unreproved in his sight to God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, Train. You look at these seven churches in Revelation chapter 1, verses 3. God has something that he reproves every church for except Philadelphia. The church that kept faithful to his word, he has no reproof to them. Ephesus, he reproves them. Smyrna, he reproves them. Thyatira, he reproves them. Every one of them, he finds something wrong that he reproves them except one, the one that kept his word. That should tell you something. So we begin to see here that all this key definitions of who Christ is today are gone. We live in a Christless Christianity today, for the most part. There are churches out there, that, that obviously, but for the most part, that's not true. And you'll see that before I'm done today, hopefully. Maybe not, but it, at least you'll have the information. Then we move into chapter 2, and here's the real issue today. He says in verse 3, in whom, Christ, are, are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Then it's in Christ. You've got to get in Christ to get it. Once the Word of God goes, then it all goes. And there's four key areas in the Colossians chapter 2 that he warns us about that we are need to look out that don't allow to happen in our church because it has happened across Christianity. And he says in 2.8, But where lest any man spoil you through philosophy, through vain deceit, through tradition of men, through the rudiments of the world. Now, I could go through each one of these, but I don't have to. You're reasonably intelligent individuals. You can understand uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, The church has moved from the Bible into philosophy. Most big churches, they keep a certified uh, psychiatrist or a Christian psychiatrist or a Christian therapist on staff so uh, they can help you solve your problems. I had a Christian counselor one time. In fact, he was a doctor. And, uh, you know, Claimed to be a Christian. I'm not saying he was or he wasn't. But I, I knew him quite well, and we had many, many discussions about uh, his trade. He was penned himself as a Christian, uh, you know, Christian psychologist that he could help you uh, through your problems uh, where the Bible wouldn't. And he told me one time, and I, I never forgot this. He says, you know, he says, we just differ on one thing, which wasn't really true. He said, you believe the Bible is absolute and complete all truth. He says, I believe the Bible is truth, but I believe there's also truth outside the Bible. You know what his truth outside the Bible was? His philosophy. Now, this is the same guy I went to lunch with one time, and I don't think he heard me hurt. He he knew I heard him. Our table was ready. They come to get us, and I I go ahead and walk, because you know me, I'm going to eat first. And I heard him say to the, to the waitress, my name is Dr. So-and-so. If I get any calls, would you let me know? <laughs> now, nobody's going to call this clown. <laughs> See, he was a doctor. <clears throat> and he wanted to impress that little girl and the people there. And I'm sure she went back to her manager and said, we have Dr. So-and-so sitting at that table. If we, he gets any calls, what do we do? Now, if she'd have asked me, well, you're sitting with Dr. So-and-so, if he gets any calls, I said, hang up on him. I'll take it. 
And I'll tell you what you do. Go over to, you have one of those loudspeakers, you know, like they got in the parts place, you know, parts line three, you'll get one of those? Yeah. Get on there and say, calling Dr. Fine, Dr. Howard, Dr. Fine. Call him that way. He'll come right over because he's one of the three stooges. And of course, but that's what you're dealing with. He was so prideful of his credentials that he went to a restaurant where nobody cared about it, but he had to tell the little girl there to impress her or whoever. That's the kind of stuff you're dealing with. And of course, uh, vain deceit, tradition of men, rudiments of the world. And then the last thing in verse 4, which I think is one of the greatest studies you'll probably never take, we're warned that we're not to be beguiled by any man with enticing words in verse 18. That word beguile is one of the greatest words that you'll ever study in the Bible. What it means in the Old Testament, what it means in the New Testament, why Eve said, you beguiled me, the devil beguiled me, what it means in Numbers chapter 28 where they find the word again, and then when it means in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 where Paul says to the church, don't let the devil beguile you. You've got to study that word. And the problem number one, putting it all in a nice big round ball, we can put it through the hoop, is the church today has been beguiled. Then in chapter 3 and 4, as a New Testament Bible believer, he tells me now what my response should be uh, to survive all of this. And I'm not going to have time to do it today, but, uh, and I know you probably won't, but in that chapter 3 and 4, there are six things that I need to do to survive what chapter 1 and chapter 2 is telling me is going on, and most of God's people have no clue. One of the most important books in all of the Bible that define the details of the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. So with all that backdrop and foundation, let's go back and look at John chapter 4, verses 26 through, uh, 21 through 24, and begin to look at in order, starting with what he says here and then coming through what happens and what you lose when you dump the Word of God. When I'm talking about the Word of God, I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version, the, the end result of the great Geneva Bible. Now, he says this, Jesus saith unto her, we're going back to the woman at the well here, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father speaketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. And they which worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And if you don't have verse 24 marked in your Bible, you better mark it. Okay, Christ is now telling her that there's going to be a change in how they worship God. In the Old Testament, you worshiped at Jerusalem, a place, kingdom of heaven. We already talked about that. But now, now is the time when you will now worship him and spirit, that's your human spirit inside you, and truth, that's the word of God that you have in your lap this morning. And we know that the kingdom of God now is the spiritual kingdom. Luke chapter 17, verse 20, 21 tells us it's inside of us. And now let's see how giving up your Bible 
affects our worship. And hopefully, if you've got any sense at all, you can see and better understand where this is the beginning of the problem and then it all goes downhill from here. Now, let me just say this before I get going. This is true of people who, this is true of people who dump the Bible, but it's also true of people that I've found that actually have the Bible, you just don't follow it. You see, we like to think, and I want to make this very clear, we like to think that it's very clear cut. You know, well, we got all these people over here that dumped the King James Bible for an NIV, you know, and they're terrible people. And they're not terrible people, but, uh, you know, that they did that. But I got a King James Bible, and I'm real, da-da-da-da-da. What good is the fact that you have it if you don't follow it? So I want you to know going in that what I'm about to say will fit in both categories. And uh, I just want you to know that. Now, the number one thing, he says we got to worship God in spirit and truth. Now, this is the definitive passage on worship in your Bible if you don't have that marked. And you know how important definitive passages are. And as I've said before, they're, they're, they're invaluable. And today, we have completely lost the biblical definition of real worship. And because of that, we, as God's church and God's people, we don't have a real biblical worship. We have deceived ourselves. We pretend. Now, I, I can just hear it now. Well, how can you say that? I'll tell you how I can say that, because God is not doing one thing in your life with somebody else's life. I'll tell you how I can say that. You've been saved, what, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, bingo, years, and you've never won a person to Christ. And you're going to tell me. Are you going to get upset because I say that, you know, worship is out the door today? So what we have done is we have made worship, and you see it all over the place. And I know people are not going to like what I'm about to say. Hey, that's my spiritual gift, ticking people off. So what we have done now in Laodicea Christianity, hear me out, we've made worship a service. We say we're going to worship God now with our tithes and our offerings. We tell people we're going to sing now and we're going to have a worship time with God and we're going to sing our song service and we're going to have worship. And we say that. We actually say that. And we actually believe that in spite of Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, unequivocally telling you how God looks at music and where music should start at with God. Let's blow that part off. We want to get up and we want to feel in the flesh. We want to feel like we're doing. It isn't about your flesh. It's about your spirit and God's truth. Not what you feel about it. Excuse me. I, 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 it's from my abusive childhood. I have a tendency to lose my cool sometimes. I'll try to keep myself restrained. Don't count on it, but I'll do my best. So we, we like Israel. You know what we've done? I told you before how that when God made that brazen serpent and told Moses to make it and put it on a pole when they were getting bit by the fiery serpents and they were to look to that picture of the cross and they got healed. Some four or five hundred years later, I told you that they had went down and got that brazen serpent and now they've given a name of a false pagan God and they're worshiping that instead of God. You know what we've done? We've take, 
God, Christ, and we've changed the name now, got completely out of the Bible and the definition, and we're worshiping something else. And yet we're pretending, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Sure we are. See, I don't know how you can say that. I say that because you're not doing anything for God. That's how I can say that. You think God died on the cross so you could just go live your merry life along on a little bicycle built for two? Do you actually think that God saved you and died with the agony of the cross and paid the price so you could just go on with life and not be inconvenienced to the rapture? Don't tell me. I wasn't on the Mayflower. I didn't go through the great death, but I wish I was. There were real people back there. But here I am, stuck in the armpit of humanity. Now, you don't worship God in a service. You, you don't worship God by giving money. You don't worship God by singing. You worship God by in your own spirit with his absolute truth. It's an attitude that you have. You don't have a worship service. You live in a state of worship 24 hours, 7 days a week. This church doesn't have a call to worship. We don't have a worship service. I'm not going to get up and say, let's give the call to worship. Your call to worship was the day you got saved. You never stop. You can live like hell, do what you want to do, but, oh, I'm going to call worship. That's how it works. And that's why God's people today care nothing about God in their life. They care nothing about anything of doing anything for God. Because they don't understand worship. It's like the word revival. You see, I don't want to have a worship service. I want to preach the fire out of you and give you everything I can so this whole church will live in a state of worship. It's like revival. Come to next week, we're going to have a revival, June 15th through the 20th. That's what we do. We schedule the Holy Spirit of God to come in. Well, he may be at another church that week. Did you check it out? It's like worship. We're not going to schedule revival. We need to live in a state of revival. You had somebody saved last week, didn't you? You had somebody saved last week. You had people get saved all the time. I get calls on the phone all the time. So-and-so got saved. One of my brother to Christ. One of my sister to Christ. I want this person. That's revival. Your excitement. Your passion. There I go again. You see, all this goes back to when I was in the seventh or eighth grade and I failed. My mother had tried everything to get me to get good grades and I just could, wouldn't do it. So you know what she did? I came home from school one day, all three F's on my report card. All the kids were coming home from school. She made me dress in girls' clothes and stand out on the porch, and all the kids laughed at me. Now, this is why I'm the way I am. No, 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 no. I don't wear girls' clothes today. I want to make that very clear. But it's not really wrong with me. No, no, no. Anyway. It's a t- well, pop my neck, but anyway, it's a thing where you want to you you live in that. Now the second thing, Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen and seventeen, and that from a child that has known 
the original manuscripts. For the child that has known the Greek text. For the child that has known the, uh, the uh, what's those, Dead Sea Scrolls. No, it's from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures. You see, the original manuscripts weren't Scriptures. The Dead Sea Scrolls aren't Scriptures. What you have in your hand is Scriptures. You know what the Bible says? It's holy. It's holy. He says, then from a child that has known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, the next thing you want to see, that when you lose your Bible, you give up your Bible, you don't have any furnishings. Now, that obviously doesn't mean much to much people because if you've got an NIV or any other Bible, they change that word. They change the word truly. And in verse 17, it says that the man of God may be perfect truly. Truly. Truly is from the inside out. All the new Bibles make it thoroughly. And then they destroy the furnished by putting in equipped. And destroy two of the greatest words. And this is why God's people never do anything for God. They have no furnishings. No furnishings at all. You see, it's truly. It starts on the inside when you get saved and then it busts itself out. Now, I, I don't know if you know of this or not, but if you would go back to the Old Testament, there's a thing called the tabernacle back there. It's a great study. Get Arthur W. Pink on the tabernacle. Get uh, uh, Larkin's book on it, the big one. It's uh, got some great stuff on it. But that tabernacle was the center of Israel's worship before they got into the land and built the temple. And I don't know if you even know this or not, but there are seven pieces of furniture in that tabernacle. Now, I already told you that in the New Testament, your, God's, your body's God's tabernacle. You know what? You should have seven furnishings inside your tabernacle today. Did you ever look what those seven were? I, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, I, I get it. Did you ever look and see what those seven were? How they apply to you? I mean, when you looked at that tabernacle, the first thing you had, well, you're right here. First thing you had right here was that brazen altar. That's the picture of Christ dying on the cross for you. I didn't do that for this. It's been up there since several weeks ago. That, that brazen altar is where you got saved. That's where they burnt the sacrifice. And then when you went inside that tent, that's a picture of you getting in Christ, your fellowship. And right before you went in, there was a laver of water there with little spigots on it. You didn't get a drink from it. You washed your feet. That priest went in and out of there, and every time he had to go back in, he had to wash his feet. You know why? The, the tabernacle had tent, all kinds of skins and everything, but it didn't have any floor in it. And every time the priest would go in to do the work in there, he'd have to come out and wash his feet because his feet got dirty. And it's a picture before you can do the Word of God you got to get yourself clean. you got to get your feet clean. Wherewithal shall a man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. He washed his feet every time he went in and out. And we got to get clean with God in our walk through the water of the word. Then you went in there when you walked in. Completely dark. No, no light from the outside. The badger skins and all those skins completely kept out the light from the world. The only light that was in there over here was seven-pronged candlestick that burnt continually. And that's all the light you had. 
That's a picture of this world being in darkness and the only light you have is the light out of that book through the Holy Spirit of God, the seven-pronged candlestick. Now, how many, how many of you guys have been to a movie theater? All of you. Quit lying. <laughs> you know what happens. You're out here in the sunlight and you walk into that movie theater and it's dark and you've got to stop a minute. You're going to step over everybody sitting there. It takes a while for your eyes to get adjusted to the light in the theater from the light that you just came from the world. Well, when that priest went in there, he had to stop for a moment because it took some time for his eyes to get adjusted from the light of the world to the light of the candlesticks. And when you get saved, this is why we disciple you. This is why we work with you. This is why we help you. This is why we invest in you because it takes time for your eyes spiritually to adjust from the world's light to God's light. So you had those seven-pronged candlesticks, Holy Spirit of God, and then you had on this side, you had what they call the shoe bread on a table. There was 12 loaves, baked fresh every morning. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. And that's a picture of the Word of God. Six and six, because your Bible's got 66 books in it. And when the priest went in there, he worked all around. But here's the case. It's a picture of you and me. He couldn't get in front of the light because then he couldn't see what he was doing, so he had to get behind the table and let the light shine on what he was doing. And that's what the problem with with so many of God's people. You have gotten in front of the Holy Spirit of God. You're doing it on your own. Then you had the altar of incense. That's where the incense burned continually. The fire for that had to come off the altar, the brazen altar. There's another study in that we don't have time to get into. And what happened was... That's a picture of our prayer life. Bible says pray without ceasing. But then there was another little laver that the guy carried that had burning incense on it, and that is a picture of your personal prayer life every day as you talk with the Lord. And then the last piece of furniture was going into the Holy of Holies, the ark, and only one man got to do that, the high priest every year. And to me, that is the ultimate relationship that we could have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, most of God's people never go behind the veil. Incredible stuff. But you see, when you change thoroughly, the thoroughly, furnished to equipped, you lose all that. I remember when we first moved into our house many, 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 many years ago. We were going through it, and I remember, you know, going into the garage, and it was completely barren. Nothing had been moved in yet. And I remember the garage door came down and the light went off and I was over in the end and it was completely dark in there. And there was no point of reference. There was nothing. It was cold. It was damp. It was wintertime. It was cold. It was damp. It was stone wall, stone floor. And I remember thinking, when Jesus Christ comes into your life and he wants the tabernacle among you and your body is the tabernacle, those furnishings are not only for you, they're for him. You know what most of God's people have done? They put him in a cold, empty, dark, dank basement and shut the door and turned the light out and said, now you have a good time. That's what we've done. No furnishings. I'll tell you the third thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, you received it not, as you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, I'll tell you, now there's, there's no working of God in you. You see, receiving the word of God is, is not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. He didn't say the originals. 
He didn't say a translation. He said the Word of God. When you get your worship right and you get your furnishings right, then the Word of God will work in you. The key word will be effectively. Not only you and me getting the most out of God, but God getting the most out of you and me. And verse 13 says, effectively in you that believe. That's not believing in Christ to be saved. I hope you didn't think that. The context is very clear, but believing the book that God gave you is His Word, as it is in truth the Word of God, then it works in you. We as God's people, and I put myself right in the middle of this, we're horrific. Where some preachers get up and would say, you're terrific. I'll tell you, we're horrific. It's close, but no cigar. And it's a thing where we are, without a doubt, the most unthankful, miserable, perverted bunch of Christians on our way to heaven that you will ever find in your life. And I tell you, when I start talking like this, and I put myself in the middle of it, but I know you got some of you pious gas bags out there who are listening to this, probably not here, but you're thinking, well, I just don't know how he can say that. Well, let me say it again so you don't miss it. We're horrific. We are John Dillinger, Alvin Carpus, Pretty Boy Floyd, Al Capone, had nothing on any of us. In fact, we probably are worse than they are. I watch and listen to God's people all the time. Hey, I listen to myself all the time. They'll go through things like whining about the problems they're going through right now. And I don't mean whining in a bad way. They'll complain. They'll say, I'm praying. I lost my job. My job's gone uh, they'll call me up or they'll say, and this is no reflection on the prayer list because all of those, as far as I'm concerned, is legit. But I'm just telling you, I get it all the time. Oh, pray for me that God do this. Pray for me that God give me this. I've got this great issue in my life and I don't know how to pray about it. Pray for me. Uh, you know, uh, they, they ask for prayer. Uh, we, we want God uh, to work uh, for us. Oh, God, help me. We get into a jam. Oh, God, I lost my job. I don't know where the money is going to come from. I don't know this. I, my health, I got a bad doctor's report. I mean, I'm struggling with this. I'm worrying about this. Oh, ask God to help me. Ask for prayer. Help me in my issues, my infirmities. Help me with my job. But in their life, not one single time have they ever done what God has asked them to do. It's about us wanting everything from Him and giving nothing back. It's about when we get into a jam, the first thing we do is, Oh God, help me, I'm struggling. But and you didn't do one thing in your life that He's asked you to do. We want God to work for us, but don't ask me God to work for you. We're horrific. It's all about us getting from Him the quality of life we think we should have and never about giving your life to Him with any quality at all. No book, no working in you. So we're a bunch of God's people 
that have great infirmities. And we are so stupid, me. We're so ignorant, me, that they're all God does for us, we ask for more. And we have the audacity, we have the guts to ask God to do this for me, do this for me, please do this, fix this, give me this, give me that, when we aren't willing to cross the street for 10 seconds to do something for him. And then we wonder why it doesn't happen. And then you know what happened? We get mad at God. We blame God. Well, God doesn't love me. No, he loves you. The problem is you don't love him. That was good. I need to write that down real quick. Fourth thing. John chapter 14, verse 23. Oh, here it comes. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man loved me, was that casting or what? If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him, and he will come unto him, and he may abode with him. Now, as I said, I've seen this, all of this, in God's people, too, who have the right Bible. This isn't limited to just to those who have given it up. I've known many a young man or a young lady or a mom or dad who had the right Bible, but in their mind, they're going to do it their way. You see, the real definition of my love for God is based on my understanding of God's love for me. And that would be the book of Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. You put the two together with understanding and you've got the right love affair with the right person. I always hear all the time the book of 1 John, you know, one of my favorite books in the Bible, they always say, well, the theme of 1 John is love, you know. I mean, every book you read, every guy you hear, that is Laodicean junk. The theme is not love, but rather the theme is to know. I mean, you would think in five chapters, if you read it and you actually read it, and you found 26 times he talked about knowing God, you'd think that maybe that was the theme. But you see, latest in Christianity, it's famous. God's people, me and you, we're famous for loving God without knowing God. This is why the divorce rate marriage and fails. We fall in love with things today and fall out of love with them tomorrow. I've had people 10, 20, 30 years, you know, that I've known, been with me in ministry, and and I've watched them that each year, instead of it getting closer, instead of it getting warmer, instead of it getting hotter, instead of you getting more on fire, they get colder and colder and colder and colder and colder. And pretty soon, it's gone. You know why? Because they quit knowing who he was a long time ago. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying they gave it up. They gave up caring about him, and their love grew cold. And it's a thing where you might love him intellectually, but Song of Solomon is nowhere within 100 light years of your life and your relationship. You see, no book, no love. I love God. This is what we say. I love you, God, for what you gave to me. But dear God, not enough to give you back the love that you gave to me. That's the Laodicean love fest. Oh, I love what you did for me, but don't ask me to do anything for you because my love's not that deep. You're like old Ruby. You take your love to town. I could sing that last stanza for you if you guys really want me to. Number five. John chapter 15, verse 7 and 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Here is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Now, now here abide, I want you to understand, it has nothing to do with your salvation. 
you're sealed at salvation under the day of redemption, the book of Ephesians tells us. But rather abide deals with our daily fellowship, my relationship, my prayer life, the things that I have, the, the intimate things with God. Notice, that's not Christ abiding in you, but his word abiding in you. So you know what that tells me? If you don't have his word, you don't have any abiding. See how simple that is? First John chapter 1, verse 7, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship one with another. See how simple that is? No light, no fellowship, no word, no abiding. If the word of God abides in you, then it will do three things for you. First one will be your prayer life, your conversation. The second thing is you'll glorify God with your life. The third thing is you'll bear much fruit. And then he says, and so shall you be my disciple. That's abiding. No words of God. He didn't say the fundamentals. He didn't say the originals. He didn't say the manuscripts. He didn't say the message. He didn't say the story. He said the words. No words of God, no abiding. Now you can see where Christianity is falling right into this. Number six. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I'll pick it up in verse 7. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee shall thou speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Now here it comes. Then the Lord put forth his hands and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my original manuscripts in your mouth. I put the Dead Sea Scrolls just like a child of vacuum up in the corner of your mouth. I've never understood why young guys like to chew tobacco and stick it out that skull stuff. You know, you know, they sell jeans now where you can get that can sign in your back pants pocket. You ever see that stuff? You know, maybe you don't know this. You write this in your Bible. You know, you take that stuff in your mouth and you spit it out. You know flies won't land on that? Ever see what flies do land on? Pray about that one for a few minutes. And he says, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, and to build and to plant. Now, the next thing we see that when you lose the Bible or you give up the Bible, you throw it away, this is why there's no power in preaching. Preaching is a lost art. If you're a collector of Japanese stuff, samurai swords or one of the premium <laughs> things you some guys like to collect. And there's a process, and I don't know what the process is, so I never got into it, but there's a way that you pull the handle off and you can actually see the maker and most of those things that they carried, the guy sent home from World War II that they carried, their NCOs, and the, uh, they were made five, six, seven, eight hundred years ago. Sword making was an art. You go to the one gun shows now, they look good on the fact that you can buy a samurai sword for 1995. It's not the same quality. But I learned a great lesson. I was there at one time at a gun show and this goofy kid, about you guys' age, you young guys, you know, he, he wanted a samurai sword, so he bought one. And he's looking at it, you know, and all showing all his friends, you know. So he took it into the restroom. And I had went to the restroom, and I walked in, and there was a trail of blood everywhere. 
And I walked in there, and the paramedics were in there, and they got this. You know what this idiot did? He took it out, and he ran his hand down that blade to see how. They may not be as good quality, but they're still sharp. <laughs> he learned the hard way. But that always reminds me, you know, art preaching is an art. But you don't find many preachers today that can preach a $6,000 message. You get 1995s. You know, back in the day, my day, I'd hear the old guys preach, like B.R. Lakin. I'd hear those guys get up there, and they would preach messages that would actually paint pictures. They were so powerful. I've heard them preach on hell so hot you could feel the heat. I've heard them get up there and lay things out and actually paint a picture for everybody through the words that they're using, through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Why? Because God put His words in their mouth and He touched their lips. And when He does that, you become an artist. You paint word pictures. And people come away with a vivid understanding of what you just said. And they would paint a masterpiece through their messages. And you know, all that's gone now. And all this because God would touch their mouth and put His words into their mouth and they would speak. But there's no preaching today. Today it's all teaching. It's all soft. It's all effeminate. It's don't, we don't want to offend anybody. There's no doctrine. I don't want anybody to come to church and get, get their nose bent in a joint because I say something that maybe they don't agree with or they don't believe. What has that got to do with truth? And I'll give you a 15-minute message, and then, uh, you know, and then uh, we'll talk about the building fund and raising this for this over here and how we need all this stuff done. And, you know, no book, no power in your preaching. The reason why most young preachers get up and most preachers get up and their preaching is not exciting because they're not excited about what they preach. So instead of painting a picture with words, they bring in a rock band or they bring in this and that and light show and smoke coming up under the thing and they entertain you because they got nothing else to give you. I want you to notice here. Real Bible-based preaching does six things found in our verse here, verse 10. One, it roots out. Two, it pulls down. Three, it destroys. Four, it throws down. Now, let me just get personal here, if I can, for a moment. In all of our lives, I think there's some things we need to root out this morning. Amen? Amen. There's probably some things we all need to pull down this morning. Don't you agree? There's probably some things in all of our lives we just need to get rid of and destroy. There's some things that we need to throw down. But I want you to notice, you got to root out, you got to pull down. Now, that's real preaching, you see? And then look what happens. You root out, you pull down, you destroy, you throw it out. Then you build and plant. There's some things you've got to get rid of as a Christian when you get saved before you can ever do anything for God. Well, the last thing. Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Now this last thing here, let's read it. Verse 6. Be strong and of a good courage. For unto this people shall not divide for an inheritance, mark that in your Bible, the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous that thou shouldest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it from the right hand or to the left that thou mayest prosper whenever thou goest. 
this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, and thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. For have, not, have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Now the last thing you lose here is probably the most tragic end. The most tragic end and result of a world, a ministry, a church, and pastors or Christians without God's word. And that is you lose your inheritance. And I can't stress this one enough. Everything we do in Christianity has to go back to the pure, absolute word of God that is God's word. It's not an issue anymore or a controversy that God's word is only found in the King James 1611 authorized version. History in the last 20 years, along with our Bible studies on Thursday night, has proven that fact. And mark it down. John chapter 1, you cannot separate Christ from his word. He in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Listen to me. Every pastor, every missionary, every evangelist, every Christian, Uh, that ever lived, no matter what they do for the Lord, no matter how popular they were, whether they had their own TV evangelism show, they had 30,000 people coming to their arena, uh, no matter what, come to hear them preach with great, great times of great crowds of people. If all he did did not start with God's holy word and a King James 1611 authorized version at the judgment seat of Christ, he has lost everything. That's hard for people today. It's like prayer. You know why in the tabernacle that altar of incense, which is a picture of prayer, had to have the fire that kept that incense going, had to come off the brazen altar? You know, there was a couple of guys that were priests that offered strange fire. They started that fire from the wrong place and God killed them. Remember that? Why did that... Why did, that, why did that incense, a picture of your prayer, have to be lit and keep lit from the brazen altar? I'll tell you why. You ain't going to like it. Laodicea in Church 101. If every prayer you ever prayed, if every desire you ever had, if everything you ever wanted to do for God, asked God for, told God you would do, if it didn't go back through the altar of incense to Calvary's cross of what he did for you, you're out of luck. That's tough, isn't it? That's tough for a lady to see in church that you just want to throw up your prayers and God grab them. Oh, okay, let's get these sorted out. They need this stuff. You remind me of a preacher one time, a Pentecostal preacher. He took the offering and he said, what are you going to do with that? He says, all we do is simple around here. He says, well, what do you do? He says, we throw it all up in the air. What God wants, he keeps, the rest falls down mine. It's the way it works with our prayer. We just throw them all up to God. We don't care one thing about it originated with the cross of Calvary. You know why? Because if your prayer life, if everything you did went back to what he did for you, you probably wouldn't have to pray for the things you're praying for. Welcome to Laodicea. And as I said, this is not just about somebody who dumps God's word. 
I've seen God's people, Christians, who had the book. I've seen them align themselves with some cult group, some charismatic, some other false teaching, some pastor, some Bible study, some, some godless thing that has nothing to do with the Bible and a guy cares nothing about the Bible. And they're so stupid that they actually think because they want to see people saved, they want to see, they think that, you know, God's going to actually honor that and you're going to get some kind of, let me tell you something, the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to lose it all. You're going to lose it all. And I've met a lot of people who think that's a radical position. And I guess for the Laodicean church period today, that is a radical position. But let me show you radical. I used to have my kids, when I'd be raise my voice a little bit, they'd say, Dad, don't yell at me. And I'd say, I will show you yelling. Dad, you're yelling at me. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You want me to show you yelling? Remember? You want me to show you yelling? And what was your answer? <laughs> See? So you want radical? You do? You want radical? You think I'm radical? Let me show you radical. Maybe this will help you. God rewarding anybody and giving them their inheritance when they have rejected his word and took up the devil's Bible and defended it and taught it as it was the word of God and have damned and messed up penny people for 20 or 30 years with the devil's Bible. God giving them an inheritance because he's going to bless you through the devil's book. Really? Now that's radical. You must be a Mormon. You must, because they believe that someday God and the devil are going to patch up their differences and be buddies again. You're out of your mind. You see, the problem with us, we've lost it all. We don't understand it anymore. We don't know who God is. We don't know what He expects. We don't know what He wants, what He demands. All we know, hey kids, all we know is what we demand. God, give me this. When I used to go to lunch with Mel Sabaka or dinner, he'd say, You pray. And I'd say, God bless this food. And he'd stop me and say, Why are you telling God what to do? He says, Don't tell God to bless the food. Ask God if he'll bless it. He says, That's the problem with you young kids. You're always telling God what to do. You know, I thought about that right when he said that. <laughs> but I thought about that years later. He's right. Even in our prayer, we're always ordering God around. The Bible to you is not a, a, a book of worship. The Bible to you is a Sears catalog. You order things from it. You have a need, so you tell God, give it to me. We're in a demand business. We're not, we're not servants of God. We, we're, we're demand things. Any Christian, for whatever reason, hooks up with the heresy and helps anybody continue in that heresy. I don't care what you think you're doing for God and you're winning people to Christ or you really want people saved. When you align your spirit with the devil's spirit and the devil's Bible, it's out the window. The problem is you're too stupid to see that or maybe you're too bullheaded to see that. Now that's radical. But as old Bob Jones Senior used to say, it's never right to do wrong, to get the chance to do right. Remember, and I hate to bring this up, 
Keep coming back to the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And if a man also strive for the masteries. Boy, you can get that one. God's people, oh, I'm doing the best I can. I'm striving for the masteries. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to see people saved. I want to do this. I want to go here. I want to do that. If a man also strive for the masteries, yet is not crowned. You mean after all he strived to do for God, he's not crowned? Why is that? Except he run lawfully. You've got to do it God's way, not your way. You can't decide, well, this is what I'm going to do, and then order God to bless it. You can't decide you're going to do it your way and then say, God, you just go ahead and bless it, and I know at the, the judgment seat of Christ it's going to be okay because i got the right heart attitude. No, you don't have the right heart attitude. you got your heart attitude. The right heart attitude would be worship him in spirit and truth. Paul said it, he says, or Jesus said it himself. He says, why call ye me Lord, Lord, not do the things which I say? Welcome to latest in Christianity. We now know what we lost when we gave up. Now you have the complete two-part series that you can go back the rest of your life. It'll be on the archives till Jesus comes back. Now you know why we are in the mess we're in, not only in America, but in this country and around the world and in Christianity. And it doesn't start with the Democrats or the Republicans. It starts with people just like me and you who think we know more about it than God does, and we've fallen into and been beguiled. Study that word sometimes. We've been beguiled to the point now where we've lost everything. We don't know who he is. We, don't, we pick and choose out of the Bible what we want. And what we have today, and I'm done with this, what we have today is a lawless Christianity filled with lawless Christians. We just want to do the way we want to do it and don't care what God's Word says about it. Don't care to find out. We got our own agenda. We're going to do it. And we're just going to tell God, now you bless me, Lord, because I'm doing this because this is what you told me to do. And God comes back and says, I ain't blessing anything because you got it backwards. But that's where we're at. Welcome to America in the 21st century. God, I hate the 21st century. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your truth, which takes us all the way back, shows us how you had this country, what you wanted it to do. And I've only touched the tip of the iceberg this morning, what you had for this country, what you gave it, how you protected it. And, Lord, I, I, I look at where we're at now, and I look at what the state we're in in Christianity God's people pretending they know what they're doing, pretending they're doing something for you. When it all comes down to our worship, and our worship is nothing more than my spirit in your truth. And that means and necessitates I do it your way, not my way. Thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you for this church and for the men and women, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, who do it by the book. Continue to help us hold the line for you. Help us to be that church of the open door. Help us to be, Father, the church that, uh, that stays open in the midst of a closed Christianity. Let us always proclaim the truth. Never back up on it. Never apologize for it. When it's clear teaching of the Word of God, then it clearly needs to be taught. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it.
Amen. God bless you. Make sure you get your application back.